We've got a ton to do this morning, so we'll jump right to it. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Esther chapter 4. And uh, we are going to continue today through our study of this crazy little book called Esther. I hope that you are enjoying it at least a small fraction as much as I am. Some of you have come back, so that's a miracle in and of itself, right? So quickly, by way of uh, review, if we could, and perhaps for some of you who haven't been here before, here's what we've hit on so far. In Esther, we've got the most powerful, prominent man on the planet named King Xerxes, who's so wealthy that it took him six months to show off his wealth and power. The guy had an open bar party for six months for thousands of people. Just try to imagine that kind of wealth, unlike anything that you and I have ever seen. There was his wife, Queen Vashti, who had her crown removed because she refused to be paraded around in this party. That launched the Bachelor of Persia, where hundreds of women were selected solely for their beauty, pampered for a year, just to get one night with the king in an effort to win the title of queen. Esther, who was an orphaned teen adopted by a man who refused to stand up for her, was drop-dead gorgeous, lost her virginity to this king, won the Bachelor of Persia, and now she is the new queen. Then we had last week a dispute between a guy named Mordecai and Haman, each flexing their muscles of pride. All of us do that from time to time, don't we? We have the edict signed into law calling for annihilation of the Jews in 11 months. Because Mordecai wouldn't bow as a sign of respect, all the Jews would die. And most importantly, this is what the story comes down to in its essence. Three chapters of the Bible we've journeyed through together without a single mention of God. He simply doesn't show up. There's no mention of Him. Nobody prays. Nobody seeks Him. Nobody's reading the Scriptures. Nothing. God just isn't there. And that isn't by accident. The narrator is telling us this story in this way in order that we'll get the point, which is what we're really going to focus in on today. The book of Esther is timeless treasure because it is life as we know it. Yeah, the culture is different. Yeah, some of the trappings are different. But the human heart is the same, right? It's exactly the same. We're prone to the exact same kinds of things. As we read their story, we almost as though are holding a mirror up in order to see our own stories. We face difficult ethical choices. We see and participate in reckless sex. We tend to go through our days as if God isn't here. We face moments of suffering. And in those times, we find ourselves asking, is God real? Why doesn't he care? Where is he? Why is he so hauntingly quiet when I seem to need him the most? I hope, friends, that you're seeing that the Bible isn't a stale, ancient book with nothing to say to us today. It's a living, breathing, active Word of God designed to pierce down to our very hearts. Not in order to beat us up, but in order that we would come to a place of brokenness and see God. And the story of Esther does that in such a way that we're designed to see God even when we can't see Him. And if that's confusing for anybody else in the room but me... Perhaps that will help us today as we journey a little bit further. The story isn't designed to tell us, be good in order to get good from God, or be bad and you'll get bad. It's designed to tell us we're all 
bad. We're all sinful. Except what? Except who? Only Jesus. And so the story ultimately rounds up in order to help us understand the redemption that's found in Christ, which we've been singing about today. One of the most important habits you and I can build into our lives is the, the daily taking in of Scripture in order that we can see these, the way these things in life merge together. In order that we can see that we're sinful people in need of a great God with great grace. So that's why we do this uh, today. Last week we left with the Jews in mourning because the most powerful king on the earth said, you're going to be wiped out. And so that's where we'll start today. Um, maybe these stories seem really stale and crazy and could they possibly be true? Was there really a place called Susa? Was there really a king named King Xerxes? Yes. Uh, here's a picture, we'll show you too, of some of the ruins of the palace where this, most of this story takes place. So this is in modern-day Iran. You go there where the Persians lived, and here is the, literally the palace that Xerxes would have lived in. The next picture will show you a different viewpoint. So real place, get on a plane, go there today. Not made-up stuff. What's funny about that? I said Iran, didn't I? You all want to go? Yeah. All right. You have very strange senses of humor. All right. We'll carry on from there. Bunch of weirdos. All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. You never laugh at the things that are actually intended to be funny. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province... So remember, the, the Persian Empire is the dominant world power at this point. Almost all of the known world is under Persian rule. So in all of these providences, there is brokenness. In every province, wherever the king's command and the king's decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. With fasting and weeping and lamenting, many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai's emotional torment is understandable. The Jews throughout all the empire have been marked for death. They've been told, 11 months from now, you will all be wiped out. Uh, All of us are familiar with the, the attempt at genocide that happened in Rwanda a little over a decade ago. Um, About seven, eight years ago, I went to Rwanda to teach uh, Bible stories to Muslim converts. And in most towns you would go in, most converts you met were women. Why? Because most of the men were dead. Literally every single person I talked to in an in-depth conversation had all lost uh, at least one family member, most of them many. At that point, years after this event, there was still a national holiday every Wednesday where the country shut down, all the stores were closed, so that there could be trials. And you would go to trial on Wednesday, everyone had to go, and they continued years later to have trials week after week after week after week because neighbor turned on neighbor. And most of these people died by machetes, 
Not guns. They didn't have guns. They literally hacked each other to death. They had stories of people who flooded to uh, Catholic churches in order to try and be saved, and they would just simply burn down the entire place. So this stuff still takes place. So uh, imagine what, what we're watching on the news now, say, in Syria, for example. Imagine that you're living in a time where that kind of thing happens, and you don't just see it on the news. You see it with your own eyes. So the, the Jews are marked knowing we have no power. We have no protection. We have no way to defend ourselves. We are all going to die. And so every day for the next 11 months, I'm going to get up and think about my days are numbered. Like most of us in the room are not stupid. We're aware we're going to die. Correct? You just don't have any idea when. And you're not particularly concerned about getting hacked up by a machete. You're not concerned about your neighbor turning on you. But that's the turmoil that Mordecai was in. And he's in it knowing, I caused this. I wouldn't bow to Haman, so Haman's turned on me. And so this age-old battle between the Jews and the Agagites is going to rear its ugly head again. Putting on sackcloth and ashes was a cultural way of, of mourning. It's an outward demonstration of internal horror. This kind of sadness is found throughout the Bible and is found throughout the world today. Friends, this isn't the way the world was supposed to be. Planes of people aren't supposed to disappear over the ocean, never to be found. People should be in, not be intelligent enough to amass billions of dollars and yet stupid enough to have hatred in their hearts for people of different color of skin. 200 plus schoolgirls are not supposed to get kidnapped in the name of a religion. Millions shouldn't go to bed hungry while others gorge themselves. Cancer, MS, depression, AIDS, MERS, the flu, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. It wasn't supposed to be like this. This is not the world as God originally designed it. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, so if you don't know the story, literally start at the front of the Bible, you don't have to go very far at all when things fell apart. Not only was humanity's relationship with God fractured because of sin, the very fabric of the world began to unravel. I I sincerely hope that we are always people who are broken over hardship and suffering, that we're never unmoved, that it, it always bothers us when there's injustice and crisis and hardship, even from people we don't, we don't particularly love or know or enjoy, even from people that, quote-unquote, uh, didn't live a good life, that there's still a brokenness in us. Sackcloth and ashes are good things. But there's something noticeably absent in Mordecai's actions. There's something clearly not said that ought to be there. Here is this man who's supposed to be, because of generations of people, someone who's worshiping God, someone who's broken over sin, someone who's crying out to Him. And yet, we see him in public mourning, sackcloth, ashes, crying out. We see Jews everywhere distraught and fasting and weeping and lamenting. But there's no mention of prayer. Nowhere. 
Like, for God's people, when there's crisis and there's brokenness, I, I have to be honest, my first temptation is to roll up my sleeves and try to do something to fix it. But that shouldn't be my first reaction. My first reaction ought to be to fall on my knees in prayer. The most helpful thing we can do is admit that we're helpless. And yet Mordecai doesn't seem to pray. There's brokenheartedness over the, this isn't supposed to be this way, reality of the world, but there's no mention of God. The one person who can do something to restore the world doesn't even get as much a mention. There's no way this is accidental. This is intended to communicate to us that there's, there's times that the people of God stray from God. And even when crisis comes, we seem to, don't, we seem to not turn to Him. Friends, when we suffer, may that not be true of us. May we run to God with our crisis and hardship and pain as Nathaniel so eloquently encouraged us earlier. All of this, of course, raises questions about Esther. What does she think about this? Her ethnicity and religion have been hidden. It's private. Nobody in the palace knows. She's one of those who have named death in the future. Let's find out what she does. Chapter 4, verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, and he would not accept them. When Esther called for Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why, he went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened, the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. From that palace we looked at just a minute ago. That he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And he went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Now, life in the palace sounds pretty attractive, doesn't it? Isn't life in the palace the kind of thing we dream about? Isn't it the reason, some of you, why you're still in school? Isn't it the reason that some of you put up with absolutely crazy expectations at work? Isn't it what you're trying to buy with that new outfit and new car? We're, we're attempting to buy life in the palace, right? I, I feel like I say this a lot. Let's do something strange in this room in church. Be honest. The pursuit of the the good life, the American dream, for many of us is one of our deepest quests. That's what Esther had. She's in the palace. All her physical needs were met. No concern whatsoever with juggling this bill to pay that bill. No stress in any way about anything physical. All the posh surroundings you can imagine, people tending to her on every whim. And yet, being at the top can be incredibly lonely. It can be the most lonely place that you can imagine. I yesterday had the radio on and a Nirvana song came on and was explaining to my daughter what happened to the lead singer of Nirvana. And uh, then we got 
in a long conversation about suicide and death and fame and money and wealth and success won't satisfy. And so Abby said, well, maybe he should have just been a comedian and, and been in movies and that would have taken care of it because life would have been funny. <laughs> the wit is unbelievable. And so then I jumped to my favorite comedian of all time, the star of Tommy Boy. I'm dating myself here a bit, I guess. What did he do? Same thing. Uh, f- friends, those, those among us who get the palace, they're miserable people, almost without exception. Why is that? The, the palace cannot satisfy. It doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. Now, there's, there's great debate about this, but I believe it's likely that Esther's faith at this point in the story just didn't matter to her. Perhaps she had become quite fond of her surroundings. Maybe God just wasn't a priority. Maybe she lost or never had a passion for God and His people. She's just living in the palace. And she's so unaware of what's going on that she doesn't even know her people have been marked for death. But Mordecai did more than simply bring her the news. You may have caught it in verse 8, the latter half. Go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of your people. Now, of course, what's ironic here is he told her earlier in the story, Esther, hide your identity when it's convenient for your gain. So cover up your faith when it'll get you ahead. But now that there's clearly a problem, when it's in my interest and in the interest of other people like me, then tell the truth. Basically, he's asking her to be a mediator. So log that away. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of king's provinces know that an, any man or woman goes to the king in the inner court without being called. There's but one law. He's to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds the gold scepter so that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Given the culture at the time, Esther's response is understandable. What does she say back? I can't do that. Everybody knows there's this big law that if you go into the king unannounced, he's probably not going to hold out his gold scepter thingy to you and you're going to die. Just for a moment, let's take a bit of an excursus here. Marriage was designed by God to be a pledge of love and companionship between one man and one woman for all of life. God's design was that the man would sacrificially love and care for his wife and that the wife would support and respect and bless her husband. And that ultimately in that, there's this beautiful picture of the tremendous love that God has for us, that Jesus has for his church. It's... It's the shadow of the true thing. But look at marriage in this book. That's not any, anywhere near the picture we're given, is it? Esther is unaware her people are going to die, and she can't even approach her husband to talk to him about it. It's not supposed to be this way. And look at verse 11 again, closely, the second half. But as for me... 
I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now, if we turn back the story in our Bibles, just one page, not long, not far, what's the picture of these two people, Esther and Xerxes? He is so consumed with her beauty, with her sexuality, with what she gives him, that in one night, she captures his heart. She says, you're the queen. She gets the crown. So in our way of thinking, then for the rest of life, it's going to be bliss, right? He's just going to be consumed with her beauty all the time. If she's the most beautiful woman in the known world, surely that's enough for the king, right? Surely his eyes will never be drawn anywhere else, let alone any of the rest of him. Their sexual encounter and her beauty were so gratifying to the king that no one else would do. So love and romance and steamy encounters, it's, it's that forever, right? Of course not. It doesn't work that way. If a relationship begins with idolatry, then apart from the gracious intervention of God, it's going to end in idolatry. Such was the case for Extra and Xerxes. The fact that she was the most attractive woman could not capture and sustain his heart. At this point, we're five years into their, their marriage and the passion has cooled. She hasn't been called on for 30 days. Why? Because he's with other women. Those of you in the room, particularly single ladies, please don't give your body to a man that doesn't first win your heart and care for your soul. When these things get out of order, it almost always goes south. If sex comes before the development of of biblical love and servanthood and the pledge of marriage, then the relationship is built on mirage. No matter how pleasurable the sex is, the relationship cannot survive on it. And even if your beauty was better than Esther's, it's still not going to be enough. You can't win him with something you can't keep him with. You'll end up in a marriage in which your husband doesn't call on you for 30 days because he's thrown himself into work or hobbies or affairs or friends or porn or whatever else. Companionship must come first. The nurturing of your heart, second. Caring for your soul and spiritual things, third. Then the promise of love and life together forever. And once those things have happened, then go crazy with the sex part. But, but if you invert that order, friends, I can promise you, you're going to have chaos and pain and hardship and difficulty. It might take a month, it might take five years, but it's not going to play out the way Hollywood tells us it will. I think Christians today get um, embarrassed by the Bible's sexual ethic. And that's largely because of really foolish um, ways in which we handle these things. I think that the Bible gives a much 
higher view of sex than the world, not the opposite. We say, here's what it's really for. When you, when you get things in the right order, it's far more than mere physical pleasure. It's the emotional, spiritual, physical combination of people who have already pledged their hearts to each other. And nothing's better than that. And the king had sex with hundreds of women who freely gave themselves to him. They were the cream of the crop, but it wasn't enough. None of you dudes in the room are that studly. So look at his story and don't be as stupid as him. Now, what if you've already made a variety of mistakes in these regards? What if specifically you've made the mistake of speeding up sex in the relationship process? What if the foundation of relationship has fallen apart because it was built on the shifting sand of sex and beauty, not the rock of Christ and companionship in Him? Satan will tell you, it's over, run, give up. But God says, repent of your sin and ask me to help you start over. He can take something that's jacked up from the beginning and turn it into something that is a trophy of grace. God's able to do that. There's not a single one of us in the room that have gotten all of these issues right. Not a one. So God has great grace. Husbands, if that's your home, let me encourage you to take the initiative to redate your wife, re-pursue her, to win her heart, to pray with her and for her, to give that idolatry that was there to God. God's gracious. He's full of second chances. Now, how do we know that? It's not merely because I'm telling you. The story itself shows us this. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. So Esther said, heck no, I'm not doing it. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, he's going to crank up the heat. Do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. A lot of the commentators I've read the last several weeks essentially say, here Mordecai is threatening Esther. He's saying, if you don't come clean with who you are, then I'm going to do it for you. I don't know if that's there or not, but a lot of people a lot smarter than me say it is. If it is, that's pretty disgusting. That's pretty awful. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, the most famous line in the book. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susha. Hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the pivotal moment in Esther's life. This is her crisis of identity, if you will. Esther has had a difficult life, hard life. Her parents have died. Her adopted, quote-unquote, father told her to keep her identity private. She was taken away from her house spent a year preparing to lose her virginity to a man she'd likely never meet again, 
only to find out she captures him, wins his attention, becomes queen, and then finds his habits don't change. But would she now risk it all and stand up for her people? That's Mordecai's plea to her. He begs her to stand up for the Jews because no one else had the chance to do what she could do. Christians, there's a huge need for Christians in the palace. Those of us who live and work in the quote-unquote secular world will be given opportunities to represent Christ and to stand up for injustice that people like me will never get. Pastors, preachers, missionaries will never be given the opportunities that some of you have been and will be given in the future. God uses people both inside these walls and outside these walls. There are people who do ministry work and people who do so-called secular work, but all Christians are given over to the work of God's kingdom. All of us. Whether you're making widgets or preaching the Bible, it's all a part of God's plan, God's work. And it's so important before you ever leave the house every day to be prepared because you have no idea what kind of opportunities God's going to present before you. One of the most encouraging things about the book of Esther is that up until this moment, we have absolutely no reason to think that Esther has been engaged with God in any way, shape, or form. None. And yet, boom, on a a platter, she served up this opportunity to be used by God to do something incredible. The same thing will happen to you if your eyes and your ears are open. In no way has she been depicted as a godly woman. Just the opposite. She's been living for herself. And when the opportunity came to stand up for God, she initially says no. One author expressed Mordecai's reply to her this way. If you risk losing the palace... You might lose everything. But if you don't risk losing the palace, you will lose everything. Esther, you said you won't go to the king. Don't you know why? It's ultimately not because of this gold scepter thing. It's because of what's in your own heart. You aren't willing to speak up because the palace is taking over you. It's already killing you. You'll die as a Jew if you don't speak up. In other words, Esther could choose the ease and comfort of sin, or she could risk losing the palace and really live. That's the same choice you and I make every day when we choose sin or we choose God. And we face that over and over and over and over and over. Ease in sin or perhaps sometimes difficulty in the godly course of action. Sin and comfort have a way of hardening our hearts towards the pain of people. We need what Esther needed. She needed a reminder of that God's king, that God's in charge, that he's sovereign. When we realize God's like that, then we can have the confidence to really stand up and to live. Esther hadn't been pure. She hadn't taken a stance for God. Nothing in her life shone like the people in previous stories, like Joseph or Daniel who went before her and stood up for God in the midst of evil. She hadn't done any of that. And yet she found herself in the palace. Why? 
Because God's a God of grace. And He's serving up a heaping pile of grace. All she's got to do is take out, take her hands out and reach it. She found herself to be the recipient of God's grace. God is a God of second chances. And third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth. From this moment on, from the moment of realizing God's grace and power were available to her, she's a, a changed woman. Nothing transforms the heart like an awareness of God's grace and His provincial care over everything in our lives. Nothing. And that, friends, is what you're doing sitting here today, is hearing the same providential care that God showed over Esther. He's showing over you. Now in closing, what we'll learn next week perhaps not in this exact way, but what we'll learn is that Esther identified with her people. She, she ends up going before the king. She becomes one of them. She entered into risk because she was willing to identify herself as a Jew. And in that way, she was able to mediate for all the Jews. So Esther did what the rest of the people couldn't possibly do. Because she did so, her favor with the king was then imputed, it was given, it was placed on all the people. Now, to those of you that know the story of the Bible, does that sound familiar? Maybe there's a thread that pulls through all of these stories that seems so crazy and bizarre. Maybe they're not really all that bizarre. Maybe it's bizarre to see them as disconnected Fables, it's much less likely that that's what they are than that there is a God who was orchestrating everything. Jesus, who would come much later, is eternally God. And He left the ultimate palace. He left to identify with us, with humanity. He left to literally become one of us. He lived a life of servanthood, becoming like his people in every way, facing all our temptations, battling all our hardships, becoming like us in each respect that we live with, except one. Jesus always obeyed. He always followed the Father. He never strayed like Esther. His love for the Father was so strong, he never turned to sin for momentary pleasure. He lived perfectly, so unlike Esther and Mordecai and Haman and Xerxes and you and me. Therefore, He could become our mediator. At the cross, Jesus mediated for us. He settled the dispute not between Esther and King Xerxes, but between you and the king, the real king, the Father, God. He took the punishment for our sin. As a result, all who turn to Jesus for salvation find that our standing with God is exchanged, that sin, that wrath is exchanged for a much fuller, richer statement and standing that Esther had with the king. Jesus is the better Esther. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray.
God, it is so unbelievably easy to see our own hearts on the pages of these stories. For those of us in the room who are already Christians, have already signed up to be on your team, how many times have we neglected to to speak up about our faith or we've kept it private because it was convenient for us, because there was some risk of loss, because we might not get what we wanted if we came out, we came clean about our faith? We're no different than Esther. How many of us have have doted over somebody because of how they look. And we've pursued sex or looking at sex or one-night stands or relationships that we knew wouldn't last. Or we, we had somebody we really thought, this is going to work, and so we engaged sexually long before the heart and love and the pledge of marriage were in place. And so we know the pain that Esther knew. How many of us have faced unbelievably hardship, unbelievably difficult hardships because of our pride? We stood up arrogantly because our pride was hurt and we know the pain of Mordecai. More important than all of that is the fact that Jesus knows our pain better than us. And even though we've turned on Him in our sin, He has pursued us. He went into the Father and mediated for us and died for us. And even now, Scripture tells us, He's interceding at the right hand of the Father. The connections here are are simply undeniable. For those of us in the room that have doubt about the veracity of Scripture or the existence of God or the truthfulness of these stories, God, may we find that it takes more faith to disbelieve than it takes to believe. These things simply could not have just happened. The unseen God is the sovereign God who orchestrates everything to His end. And your end is that we would respond to your gospel and find freedom from sin and live for you. And so I pray, God, that anyone in the room right now who hasn't done that would do so now. And any of us that are finding a heaviness over things that we've done as believers would turn from them and would find the incredible grace that was given to Esther is the exact same grace available to us. And Father, then as we've prayed that individually, may we have the courage before we leave this room to express that to somebody who would then walk with us in love and support. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.